This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Play video games? I'm not that into them personally, but it's hard not to notice that they have become a major part of our culture. Seeing a movie based on a video game is no longer weird. Think Tomb Raider or Resident Evil. Neither is seeing a whole bus full of little kids who are completely absorbed in their portable gaming systems. No doubt about it, gaming plays a role in our lives that we probably would not have imagined a few years ago. And of course, it seems like worries about video games have taken over a lot of the mental space that was once occupied by worries about going blind from sitting too close to the TV. But what effects do video games actually have on us? And is there a chance that some of them might be positive? In a few minutes, we'll get an expert opinion on that subject. But first, I was curious about what people who aren't professional researchers think about video games and their effects. We sent Laura Zifang into the city to find out. My, my name is Joe Monticelli from the Bronx, and uh, I'm a carpenter. My name is Kathleen Paul. I'm from Chicago, and I'm a student. Joe Gersbeck. I'm a financial analyst from Morganville, New Jersey. My name is Richard Williams. I do cabaret, and I live on... 64th Street. I like to play uh, Advanced Warfighter, Tetris, Mario Brothers, Mike Tyson's Knockout. You give me any video game, I'll play it. I like Mario Kart because it has great characters, good sound effects, and it's a driving game, so it's easy to get into. Probably showing my age, but I like uh, Doom and Tech Mobile and some of the games like that. I don't play a heck of a lot of the newer ones out there, but my kids do. In Mario Kart, you have to drive against all of the Nintendo characters in crazy settings like a beach or an ice desert and pretty much win with avoiding bananas and bombs and stuff like that. In Doom, I believe the plot is that you're a Marine and the world's been taken over by Martians and other Marines have become mutated as well and you got to kind of go through all different... uh, mazes to try to kill off all these mutants that are trying to take over the world. I like Toad. He's really cute and like when he wins he's like, I'm the best! When Peachy wins she says, Peachy's got it! (laughs) And uh, oh, if Wario slips on a banana peel it's like, wow, 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 wow. See, the aliens kind of make noises like, there's kind of a scratching, clawing noise when they're coming to get you and then if the marine dies at the end you get a ah! in the marine as he kind of falls down and gets killed i i hadn't played a lot of video games in a while and two months ago i'd been laid off from my previous job and i was searching for another job and i found that during that stressful time i broke out doom and i was playing that and it kind of it kind of relaxed me a little bit although the game itself when you're in the middle of it seems stressful it kind of clears your your brain from other things because you got to kind of concentrate on what you're doing. Uh, video games help you with your hand-eye coordination, help you with your uh, reaction time, making you a little quicker. Play them enough, they can be harmful to you, making your brain in the mush. In video games, the same situation where you, you get killed one time, you go back to the exact same one and do better, and, and life usually doesn't work that way. But I, I think it can help kind of think your way through things and maybe relieve stress. Have you ever played video games? No. (laughs) Why don't you play video games? It's enough to get online and send an email. But video games are just not my generation. In a few minutes, we'll hear about another effect of video games, family bonding.
But first, Fran Blumberg is an associate professor in Fordham's Graduate School of Education. She's recently completed a study of what fifth, sixth, and seventh graders are actually doing with their minds when they're playing video games. And her work is part of a larger body of research that suggests that video games might not just make us sedentary and pale; they might actually make us smarter or more mentally adept. I spoke to Blumberg about her work, how it fits in with other work that's going on, and how it affects all of us out here in the actual world. Fran Blumberg, thanks so much for coming in, and welcome. Glad to be here. So, tell me about your study that you've been doing. The work that we've been doing over the past ten years has been looking at what do kids actually do when they're playing video games. We've seen a lot about what it is that happens as a result of playing video games, but we don't really know what happens when they're actually doing it. So, the study that we just completed. Looked at how fifth through seventh graders problem solved. What sort of cognitive skills did they use when they were playing a commercial video game? And what we found was that the fifth and sixth graders were more concerned with planning, with their problem solving, whereas the seventh graders were more concerned with evaluating their performance, how well am I doing, and just the here and now. So they didn't seem to be planning as much or strategizing as much as the younger kids. How did this study work? Like, paint me a picture of how the research itself was done. Really, quite easy. What we had kids do was we had them talk out loud for twenty minutes while playing a video game. So they just spoke about everything they were doing as they were playing. So it was twenty minutes of nonstop kid. And this was a lot more pleasant than the study we did with adults, in which we had them speak out loud for twenty minutes, and we literally had to sanitize the data. But with our kids, it was basically, "What are you doing?" At this moment in time, so what kind of things would they say? I'm stuck. I can't get past this level. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to spin to see if I can break through this wall so I can get to this next level. The seventh graders were very inclined to talk about this game sucks or this game is good.、Um, they also were more inclined to be very parsimonious. I'm running. I'm jumping, which made it easier to transcribe. So, which games were they playing? They were playing a game that, in some circles, would be considered very archaic. They were playing Sonic the Hedgehog two for Game Gear, but many of the kids found this very entertaining. Some kids wanted to know where we actually got the game, but it's an it's an old mainstay,、um, and we selected it because it's appealing to girls and boys, and also because it's relatively nonviolent. What happens in that game? I, I'm embarrassed to say I have no idea. It's a game that's been around for quite a while. Actually, what you're doing it's an adventure game, and you're actually trying to, in the short term, get to certain levels so that you can、uh, sort of free fuzzy animals,、um, capture crystals, and the ultimate showdown is with Doctor Robotnik. Who's got this great mustache?、Um, and the idea is to defeat him so you can rescue your good buddy Tails. So the results that you got from your study, what what do they actually mean in terms of、uh, the world outside of video games? What they mean is, or what they demonstrate, is what most gamers know is that there is problem solving that goes on in the context of games.、Um, whether they have transfer to the outside world in terms of academic activities is the question, and educational pundits have been claiming that the, the ramifications of video games are immense, and that you can sort of take the types of skills they show in video games and import them into the academic setting. And if we don't first know what they're doing, 
how could we then look at transfer across settings? And this, this study was one of the first that I know of to examine what is it that kids are doing. Your work is part of a whole larger body of research that looks at the effects of video games on people's mental and physical development and dexterity. Tell me about some of the other work that's going on. Um, there's some very exciting work going on um, looking at how play, the playing of first shooter games, and this is work done by Green and um, Bevelier, that is showing that the playing of first-person shooter games, even of a short duration, actually enhances visual attention, actually enhances spatial spatial skills. Um, Another study that was done by Doug Gentile um, and others demonstrated that laparoscopic surgeons who had played video games actually showed enhanced dexterity in the context of surgical situations. Um, So the playing of video games actually served to enhance um, dexterity, manual dexterity, which is good for a surgeon. Were were there any um, consistent negative effects that people found? Um, There are are consistent negative effects that have been demonstrated by folks such as Craig Anderson at Iowa State, which indicate that the playing of video games may arouse negative affect, aggressive affect. So kids may, as a result of playing video games, may have more aggressive thoughts as a result. Now, are in terms of sort of making you smarter, more dexterous, or have better attention span, are some kinds of games better than others? It's not politically correct to say, but the research does demonstrate that first-person shooter games do seem to enhance manual dexterity. But first-person shooter games are notably violent. And that's a concern. What about Sonic the Hedgehog? Not. Not at all. Not at all. It's an adventure game. At worst, it's going to make you frustrated, and you'll turn off the game console. But no negative impacts. Now, what are we to make of all this? It's interesting. It's interesting to see what the bloggers are making of all of this. Uh, The bloggers, uh, the game bloggers, are sort of responding to the press release release. by APA with, duh, we knew this all along. Um, It's a first step in delineating what happens in leisure settings, what happens in settings that kids self-select, what happens in games that they choose on their own without an authority figure. What do they do in these contexts? And is it possible, once we know what they do, to see how we can sort of import these skills into a learning setting? Is what kids are doing when they're playing a video game, is that really different from what kids have done in the past when they're just playing on their own? Not at all. Not at all. Video games provide just another context for play. It's another venue for um, recreation. Much li- And the beauty of it is that it's interactive. But much like we used to play games in the middle of the street, you can't do that anymore. But uh, it's the same. It's play. Now, why should we care about all this? We should care because before we sort of try to grab onto anything that's going to help us remediate the state of education, we should think, what is it that kids are doing? The new panacea has been cited as, you know, games, let's use games in the classroom, let's use games to, you know, teach health, let's use games to teach, you know, rocket science. Before we go ahead and run to this as a possible way to remedy, you know, educational woes, let's first look at what people are doing. And this was an attempt to address that question. Well, Fran Blumberg is an associate professor in Fordham's Grad School of Education. Fran, thanks so much for coming in. Pleasure.
You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7, WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. In a few minutes, we'll talk about how efforts to measure kids' academic abilities might be hurting our educational system. But first, one of the big complaints that critics of video games have is that they alienate people from one another. But for Kirsten Sanders, it's one of the big ways that she connects with her father. From Cura Youth Radio in Chicago, here's her story. My father, Kirkland Ken Sanders. He is 50, 6'3", 356 pounds. He works for the Chicago Police Department. He and my mom are divorced, and I visit when he's not working or off on a trip to the Bahamas. I ask him to take me, but he never does. He is an overprotective father who won't let me leave anywhere by myself, not even travel downtown for classes. But he would let me tear off a guy's head with my own hands or blow up a whole army with a bazooka in the room right next to him. Playing video games is a way my father and I bond. Since we really don't talk that much face-to-face, he had to stop wrestling with me, and I had to stop using his stomach for a pillow because, well, I grew up. But when we play video games, we talk. No, we holler from one room to another. When I go to his house, we dive into the world of City of Heroes together. This world is full of towering buildings, heroes fly effortlessly over, Factory-covered lands, underground tunnels dig deep into the earth, and mad scientists run freely among the citizens. Our game usually begins as a nice player-versus-player game. My dad in his room, with his dusty orange walls, paper strewn over his computer desk, and his floors. And me in my room, with posters of Tifa from Final Fantasy, and anime pictures of Kurai from Angel Sanctuary hiding the purple walls. My dad and I are fighting each other defending ourselves from each other's hero's attack. My dad hero is Hidden Storm. He wears black and yellow tights with lightning bolt patterns on the legs and arms, and he has the power over lightning. And my hero, Terra, dressed in all-metal armor with a red S in the middle, and has the power over the earth. Come on, Dad, you can't do that, I say as he tries to sneak up behind me and hit me while my back is turned. I could do whatever I want to, he sneakers as he continues his onslaught. Well, let's see how you like it. I trap him with one of my tangled vines and attack him with no mercy. Ah, you little brat, he screams as I take the lead. But in the end, I never win. You lose. He never lets me win. How did I lose? I sulk as my body lies lifeless on an abandoned factory floor. Because you can never beat the all-powerful, he struts into my room. I mean, shouldn't that father let his child win? He probably thinks losing is a great learning process that can somehow help me in the future. He could be so cruel. But I just enjoy being with my dad, even if we are killing each other. That piece from Kirsten Sanders and Curie Youth Radio in Chicago. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. That's ahead at 7.30.
But first, alongside debates about technology and learning have also arisen debates about testing. Throughout the country, states have testing programs that aim to measure how much students are learning. But how well do they measure this? And how much is what's known as teaching to the test affecting education? In New York State, Fordham Psychology and Psychometrics Professor Howard Everson is a technical advisor to the state's Office of Standards, Assessment, and Reporting. They're the ones who administer the tests. He and some of his colleagues are among those raising the alarm about the possibility of score inflation on state tests. I asked him to join me in the studio and tell me about the situation. The state sponsors a testing program for elementary and secondary schools, a three through grades three through eight accountability system where the students are tested at the end of every academic year, and those test scores are used to judge and provide information to the state on uh, how well the schools are doing. They're not typically used for measuring students, individual students, or for promotion or moving from grade to grade, but they are used for providing accountability measures for the schools and school districts around the state. So what's the reason for all this testing? Well, there's been much concern and hand-wringing about the quality of our schools, especially since we began doing international comparisons in around the the mid-1980s or so, late 1980s. And there's been enormous concern throughout the nation about the quality of American uh, public education. And so uh, in efforts to ensure quality and to sort of get at the uh, the heart of the issues, testing programs have been instituted nationally with the National Assessment for Education Progress and now throughout the United States in each of the states under the No Child Left Behind Act that was passed in 2001. That ushered in a widespread use of standardized testing for accountability purposes in the American school system. So how have those tests gone over for the most part? Well, I think for the most part, they've been successful. That is, uh, they've been used honestly and um, I think uh, productively to judge the quality of the schools. Uh, There are some concerns about the quality of the tests in some states. Uh, There are some concerns about issues of teaching to the test and issues of test score inflation that come about when tests are used in such a visible, accountable system. But I think, by and large, the system has been working fairly well for the past decade or so. What kinds of things has it revealed about the American educational system? Well, we have some challenges in our system. Our students aren't learning math and science uh, as well as uh, as we'd like. We see that in international comparisons. We have a, a good deal of fluidity in our system, students moving from one school to the other, moving from state to state, which are affecting the test scores. And we also see an, an enormous amount of linguistic diversity in our schools. So these issues are reflected in the test scores and uh, have caused some policymakers and educators and parents uh, concern about whether their children are getting a good enough public education. So you are particularly concerned with uh, New York State. What do you think is going on with New York's test scores? Well, they've been rising over the past, I'd say, three or four years. The jury is out on whether these test scores are reflecting true learning and true improvement in the educational system or whether we're seeing uh, test score inflation because teachers and others are teaching to the test or placing far too much emphasis on performance on standardized tests and 
modifying their instructional practices so that students score higher on the tests without necessarily learning the material that we'd uh, that we'd like them to learn or, or that the tests represent so there is a there's debate the scores are going up many people like that think that's a good thing. There are some of us, and myself included, and some of my colleagues at, at uh, Harvard University and elsewhere, who are concerned that we may be seeing an illusion, that the test scores may not be accurately reflecting what students are learning over time, and that they may be reflecting more the unsavory and pernicious practices of uh, of score inflation and inappropriate preparation for teaching to the test, I guess, is the best way to say it, in some schools and in some school districts. We're trying to tease out the issues. We don't know exactly how much of the gain that we're seeing in the scores is related to um, to score inflation or is just the effects of improvement in, in, in instruction and improvement in teaching and learning. How would you be able to tell the difference? Well, we'd have to do some systematic studies to get at that. Rather complex designs would be needed to do that, but there are ways to uh, to modify the existing tests to reanalyze the test score data to give us a handle on whether we're seeing real gain or whether the gain that we're seeing is due to uh, inflationary practices. So if I were a teacher and I wanted to improve my students' scores on these tests, how might I go about doing that? Well, in that case, what teachers are typically doing, it seems to me, is that they're looking at the tests and they are focusing on certain kinds of test questions, certain areas that the test is covering, and they're drilling their students on those kinds of questions over and over again with the assumption that, well, these questions will show up on the test, and so we want you to uh, to do well on the test and therefore... If you practice these questions, your scores will go up incrementally. It doesn't necessarily reflect good teaching and learning. Students don't learn the broader uh, domain or they're not exposed to the entire curriculum, and that's problematic. So in a situation where there is score inflation, who benefits from that? The benefits of it are that, you know, policymakers and others have the sense that schools are improving. The downside is that when students then go on to perform in these domains, these academic domains, in other situations, in tasks that are not on the test, but that are representative of domain, they often don't do as well. We see a, a sort of a, a difference in, in state test scores, in many state test scores, when students are tested on the state tests and then when students samples of students are tested on the National Assessment for Education Progress, uh, the, what we call the NAEP tests. Those tests show students not performing, generally not performing as well as the state tests are, are indicating. So those of us who rely on the evidence are at best confused. What's the real picture here? Are students doing as well as the state tests say they're doing, or are they performing at the levels that the national assessments are, are, uh, are indicating? And we don't know. Uh, we're, not, we're not seeing the dramatic improvement on the national assessments that we're seeing on the state assessments. So we begin to become skeptical about the state assessments so if I were, say, a school administrator or a school district, what would I have to gain by my scores increasing on these tests? Um, I mean, what are there material benefits if you do better? 
In some systems, there are. I mean, in some systems, there are bonuses and incentives tied to uh, students' performance on tests. In some systems, uh, teachers are rewarded when their classes' test scores uh, go up. There are also a range of sort of social incentives as well. I mean, um, it's quite common for people to experience uh, when they're buying houses or moving into uh, new communities that the real estate agents and others tell them what the average test scores are in the school, in the school district, and that has some influence on the prices of uh, homes and apartments in, in the area. There's strong incentives for doing well for teachers, for administrators, school district personnel, politicians, and others for the students to do well on these uh, standardized tests. They become very powerful social indicators. So you say that there are things going on in terms of uh, teachers, administrators, others, and students trying to increase their scores without increasing their learning, which isn't a huge surprise. But you do say that the tests themselves are okay. Is that a controversial position? I think it is. I think it's controversial. Um, For the most part, the tests that I've looked at in my role on the Technical Advisory Committee and in various other roles that I have in standardized testing, most of the tests are built well. They're built to the specifications. They have the the reliability and validity coefficients and estimates that we're um, that we'd like to see technically. So they've got the technical characteristics that that we'd like to see. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily a problem of the structure of the tests. I think it's sort of the social uses of tests and how these indicators are being um, modified, corrupted in some cases by practices in the field. So you're proposing that New York State do a study about what's going on. Um, How would you study this sort of thing? Well, we've got some tentative plans. And when I say we, I'm really talking about a small group of us uh, uh, headed by Professor Daniel Koretz at Harvard University, um, um, who are trying to think through the research designs that we would need to develop so that we would essentially what we would try to do is place alternative tasks into the tests to give us an indicator or benchmarks of student performance when the tasks are not necessarily the kinds of tasks that teachers have been seeing over and over again in test preparation materials. It's not in an effort to trick the students or to do anything unsound, but it is an effort to sort of begin to say, can we get some, can we embed independent indicators inside these tests that give us some sense of the fidelity of the measures that we're getting from the larger test. So what kind of stuff? Well, it would be alternative uh, ways of asking questions, alternative problems for students in math and reading, uh, maybe passages in reading that they haven't uh, necessarily seen before in math, structuring the questions somewhat differently or the problem sets somewhat differently. It would take some collaboration on the part of the state agencies and on the part of the uh, the contractors who provide the uh, the standardized tests. So we have uh, questions and concerns about how much collaboration we'd be able to get on this. But um, we think it's a it's a useful area to investigate so that we can begin to assure ourselves that the kinds of gains we're seeing are reliable and valid gains and not being influenced by 
by other practices. Has New York State come on board with the idea? They're they're uh, warming up to the idea. They have questions about the feasibility of doing it, the practical aspects of modifying tests for some students and maybe not for others. So there are some, some issues that we'll be discussing at the next meeting in October about the feasibility of doing this. What would you be hoping would happen in the situation where this research was carried out? We hope that we'll be able to convince and persuade a few states, not just New York State, but others, to join with us in this research uh, so that we can get a good sample of students from a variety of states to so that we can understand what the data look like across states and uh, get a sense of, you know, how much when we see these incre increases in scores, how much of it is, is, is real and how much of it is related to score inflation. Um, so we're hoping that New York will take the lead and, um, and work with us on it, and then maybe we'll be able to use that collaboration to uh, persuade others to join us. Well, Howard Everson is a professor of psychology and psychometrics at Fordham, and he is also an advisor to New York State on educational testing. Howard Everson, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. Producing the show this week with help from John Stanford, I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a wonderful weekend. WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.